0: Welcome to a healthy bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. Hey, we are here today with Jennifer Cohen Harper. And Jennifer is an educator, public speaker, mother, and founder of New York city's, little flower yoga, which I think you started that back in 2006. Am I correct? And today we're talking about, um, Jennifer's new book, which is thank you, body, thank you, heart. And it's almost like a little poem, but it's just teaching our children to be grateful for their bodies. And I felt like it was almost a little meditation to help children calm down before they go to sleep. Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book?
1: Sure. Thank you so much for asking and for having me. Um, So, you're so right when you say it felt like a little meditation because that's really um, what it is. It's a practice, a bedtime practice. And, you know, my work for the last 15 years or so, has been sharing mindfulness and yoga with children, um, with educators, with mental health care providers, and with families, um, primarily through the New York City school system, um, but also nationwide in various capacities. And I've been doing that work for a long time, and then I had kids of my own. So I have a two-year-old and a seven-year-old, both girls, and, of course, bringing the work that i'd been doing in schools into my own home is an entirely different experience as anyone who does anything with kids in their professional life knows um, once you try to bring those things to your own kids the experience changes so for me i was really trying to explore how to share these practices with my own kids in ways that felt Um, natural and authentic and not too teachy or preachy um, ways that they would want to engage. And because I have little girls, um, especially when my oldest daughter got to about kindergarten age, I started noticing her, um, you know, thinking about herself a little differently, looking in the mirror a little differently, being more aware of what she looked like. And it became really important to me to start um, talking with her about, about her body in terms of what it can do and what sensations she's having, and really veer a little bit away from that "what do I look like" thing. You know, I just wanted to provide some balance. And my kids love books; they love books. So this whole book started out really as like conversations with my older daughter, us playing with like, "What did your feet do for you today?" You know, "Why should you be thankful for your belly?" Um, and My kids only have, you know, the capacity to listen to me talk for so long. But if you put it in a book, they will read the same book every single day over and over again, read it to themselves, look at the pictures. And that's why I, that's why I put this in a book form so that it would stick.
0: And I think. Probably part of why they're willing to listen to the book repeatedly is because it's precious in the rhymes. I love the way it rhymed. I mean, I know poems don't always have to rhyme, but when they do, it just kind of feels good and you get in a rhythm when you're reading it. And the illustrations are really adorable. Do you mind if I show the inside of the book? So if you're listening to the podcast, you may want to hop over to YouTube so you can see how cute the illustrations are in in this book. And the illustrations are done by Karen Gilmore. Um, so I just thought they were really precious. I enjoyed, um, looking through all of the illustrations. I have an a a daughter who's an artist and I, I showed her some of the pictures from here. It was really precious, but so I'm sure that's part of why they enjoy having it read to them over and over, but it's not just a storybook. It's definitely a way to teach our children that, um, they're, body is unique to them. I think that you have definitely reached your goal in other ways. I know that this is your goal to um, help them to understand that their body, um, that they can have a healthy relationship with their body and they can be thankful for all the things they do. What other things do you do with the children that you work with to help them have a healthy relationship with their bodies?
1: Yes, thank you for asking. So the work um, that I put into this book is a small part of a much bigger picture, of course. Um, And at the core of what I do with kids more generally is focus on building essentially two things, which is self-awareness and personal power. So I talk a lot with kids about the idea that we all have inner resources. We have our body, we have our breath, we have our mindset, and then we have the resource of community right, of our relationships. And we don't know how to use those resources unless we learn and practice, right? It's really hard to use your resources during a challenge or um, during a difficult situation if we haven't tuned into them and practiced using them day to day. So, and the first step really to, to being able to help yourself to have agency in your life to be able to notice that something's hard and figure out what can I do about it instead of going to a place of I can't do anything about it you know the first step of all of that is self awareness right knowing what's going on with you you have to know what's happening before you can figure out what you need and what you can do to make it better and i think a lot of our kids for various reasons in our culture, are very disembodied and they are cut off from the messages that their body is giving them. Our body is giving us so much information all the time about the world and about how we're doing in it. But if we learn to ignore our bodies, which many of us do, then we're not receiving that information and then we can't act on our own behalf. So my work is really rooted in putting those pieces back together. So, you know, we practice yoga with kids. Yoga looks so different than it does with adults. It's very chatty. Um, It's very interactive. And I'm always asking them things like, what part of your body is working right now? What part of your body feels like it's relaxing right now? And the idea is just to get them to reconnect the mind and the body so that they can listen to whatever their body has to offer. And then the next step is how do you harness your power? Right? What does it feel like when you stand in this way or move in this way or breathe in this way or um, say these things to yourself in your own mind? What changes? And then you can put those two pieces together. What's going on with me and what do I need? Right? And, and that's the, that's the work.
0: You know, wow. It can, it can you get be a-
1: more complicated,
0: but a simple <laughs> form, that's what it is. And do you get a lot of feedback from kids? I mean, what's it like? I can't even, I don't, I've never taken my kids to yoga. I guess I should. But so what kind of feedback do you get from kids? Yeah, the kids
1: mostly love it um, when they're not feeling pressured. So, you know, one of the challenges is that in our very achievement oriented culture, um, the kids are immediately like, am I doing this right? And I'm like, I don't know, can't tell from the outside if you're doing yoga and mindfulness right. (laughs) You know, and then I ask them questions about their internal experience. Once they get over that, like once they realize, oh, this is actually about me, not like me trying to get something right, then they relax into it. And I think most of our kids are craving that. You know, what what kids want most in the world and, and adults, frankly, too, is to be seen and to be told that their inner experience matters, right, for that to be valuable, and oftentimes our kids are evaluated based on external criteria, and they're constantly feeling stuff or thinking stuff and then looking for someone to say that that's right or that's good, you know, and this idea that we can just check in with ourselves to, to answer our own questions, it's such a relief, Right. And for most of the kids that I've worked with, you know, some are more eager, some hang back, some are really physical, some want to do quieter practices. They're all different. But the, the unifying thread is that sense that, oh, what's going on with me matters and is worth paying attention to. And that is like a light bulb for a lot of kids. And they, they thrive in that environment.
0: I'm sure it helps to sharpen their intuition and reduce anxiety so I can see where that would be a good practice for kids. So your book, we talked about it being like a meditation guide that encourages children to be grateful for everything their body is capable of. And that was your intention, partly in writing the book. So you're saying a lot of what you write in the book about the different body parts and stuff that comes from your yoga. So like how long, whenever kids are in your yoga studio, like how long is a yoga session for kids? I mean, because I know they probably have maybe a shorter attention span or like how, how does it work? Yeah. Um, so our
1: programming is all school-based. So we don't have a yoga studio. Oh, so you
0: go into the school.
1: Exactly. We go to school. So we do, um, two different things we do classroom cushions where we send a teacher into a school for anywhere from about 15 to 40 minutes and that teacher will go from classroom to classroom and we practice with the kids right in their chairs right in their classroom um that's one form of what we do when we do direct service work with kids Mm -hmm. Um, and the other is mat-based classes in schools so either school day or after school um Alternative types of phys ed classes where we really get the kids on the mat. And those classes on the mat are usually 45 minutes to an hour. And it, it's an interesting question about kids' attention span because um, most people who watch kids, you know, I think um, watch kids do what they are choosing to do. Sometimes marvel at how long their attention span can be. (laughs) You know, the attention span only feels short when they were trying to get them to do what we want to do. So I think the attention span thing is, you know, kids are always paying attention to something, Mm -hmm. but most of their lives, we're trying to get them to stop paying attention to what's interesting to them and pay attention to what's interesting to us, right? And then we're like, oh, their attention span is so short. It's like, they're just not into this, right? So I think. You know, and of course, different kids are different. And some kids can stay with something a really long time. Some kids need to mix it up. But the beautiful thing about sharing these practices with kids is that all we're working to do is cultivate awareness of and kindness and curiosity towards whatever is true in the moment. So it allows us to stay with our core intention while doing a wide variety of activities. So we can... We can mix it up if we need to, or if our kids are really engaged with something, we can stay with it. Um, and as a, as a teacher, that's the challenge, right? It's really attuning to what's going on with the kids right in front of you and adapting what you're offering to what's working for them. always um, coming back to that core thread of, What do we notice about ourselves, each other, and the world, given what's happening? Can we bring a kind, curious attention to it? Because the work of mindfulness, the work of yoga, is not the work of learning a set of practices, right? Mm It's the work of learning about ourselves through a set of practices. So because of that, we have tremendous flexibility to craft what we're offering to the interest and engagement of the kid in front of us. And wow. How we pay their attention.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess you get a lot of positive feedback from the teachers then whenever you're going through this.
1: We do. Um, we do a lot of professional development work with teachers in schools. So we'll go in and teach um, anything from a 75-minute to a full-day PD. Um, we work with classroom teachers, school-based psychologists, mental health care providers of all kinds, um, guidance counselors. And... It's really offering them a new way to think about their own experience, right? A new way to relate to what's happening, um, to to attune to what is stressful and overwhelming for their nervous system, Mm -hmm. right? And then an opportunity to notice how once they um, they have some tools to manage their own nervous system, they can co-regulate with the kids, right? They can attune with the kids. Um, and it also just gives them some fun things to do. Some ways to engage on a human level with the kids, Mm -hmm. um, where they're all new, right? It's not like I am the master and you are the student, right? Where it's like, it's new for all of us and we're just playing with it and there's no right or wrong, there's no grade, right? It's just, what do we notice? And it really, um, not only does it help the kids and the teachers regulate their nervous system, um, refocus their attention, it also changes the relationships in the school right when everybody is a little more aware of themselves a little more aware of each other um we really the the part that i love so much about working in schools is when we can work with enough individuals within the school that we start to shift the school culture and the culture itself becomes kinder and more accepting of the fact that everyone in this system is a human being mm-hmm. and everyone's deserving of compassion. The kids, the teachers, the administrators, that's the real, um, to me, that's like the real magic part of working in schools.
0: I can see that because if you feel more self-compassion towards your own body, then you're more able to um, show that compassion to the people around you. So I can see where this practicing this or even reading the book every night and just being thankful for your body parts and everything as you go through each page would help you to have more compassion to the people around you. And just that's the thing that we need to actually make the world a better place is, I mean, because it really does begin with us. Yeah. So I'm sure that you have experienced kids with ADD and ADHD. How how do you see this working with them? Does it seem to calm them down? Does it help bring focus?
1: Yes. And also, I think part of the reason it does is because that's not what I'm trying to do. It's a little paradoxical, but you know, the, the intention is not to calm the kids down. And I think sometimes that is a little bit of a A misunderstanding around mindfulness in general is Mm -hmm. that it creates this sort of like serene state of calm. But mindfulness is not about getting calm, it's about getting aware, right? And then when we're more aware, we can choose our actions more appropriately. So, you know, working with kids with ADHD, while there's certainly some differences in how I'm thinking about the offering, mostly around reducing stimulation. By the way, it's not so much that I'm like, oh, I'm going to do it shorter and a little microbursts. Mostly what I'm thinking about is that kids with ADHD often have a very sensitive nervous system and get easily overstimulated. So I'm thinking about how do I reduce stimulation? Things like I'm not going to have background music on. I'm going to allow there to be pauses and space between offerings. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to minimize the use of fluorescent lights and maybe even see if I can like make this space, have a little less like pictures and things on the wall, right? Reducing stimulation really mm-hmm. helps. But then I'm not sending the message that there's something wrong with you and I'm sharing these practices to fix them, right? That's a, a setup for resistance. <laughs> so what I'm saying is every single person, no matter what, you've been diagnosed with or not diagnosed with, whatever your challenges are, every single person, adult and kid alike, can benefit from understanding themselves better so that they can know what's real, know what's causing certain things to be experienced the way they are, and then start to learn about the tools that work for them. And not every breathwork practice works the same for every kid. You know, you can do one thing and, and this kid feels energized by it and this kid feels grounded by it. And allowing for that very um, kind of human um, difference, right, that that very, very natural human variation tells the kids, hey, there's nothing wrong with you here, right, I'm not trying to fix you, I'm not trying to change you, I'm trying to help you know yourself and be the you that you wanna be, right? Not the you that I want you to be, (laughs) the you that you wanna be. And when kids really feel that like heart message, they're
0: in. That's a beautiful thing. And I'm sure that helps them to feel more confident in the end. So that's a win-win. So along with your book, do you have any other suggestions for young children? Like I was telling you before we started recording of a friend whose daughter has some trouble sleeping. So maybe children who experience nighttime anxiety or just have trouble falling asleep because of maybe overstimulation or fears or all of the things, you know, kids sometimes will have trouble falling asleep for various reasons, but do you have any suggestions that could go maybe along with your book?
1: Yeah. Parents
0: could use, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've and you know, I've got seven years of experimentation now. <laughs> so in addition to my, you know, my training and my <laughs> youth development work and my, my work in parent education, now I've got like the lab of my own children, which is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, there are some things that we know right there. So there's some things I know from the science, there's some things I know from working with families, and there's some things that I know from being a parent. And, you know one thing that's true for all of us, kids and adults, is that sleep is very vulnerable, right? When we go to sleep, we're entering a state of extreme vulnerability. And our kids know that intuitively, right? They don't know it intellectually. Maybe they do. Some of them might be thinking about it. Um, but all of our kids, from the perspective of their body their nervous system, know that they're vulnerable when they go to sleep. So what does that mean? right that means a few things that means that in order for them to comfortably fall asleep they need to know unequivocally through experience not from being told but through experience that there is a competent grown up who loves me unconditionally around <laughs> protecting me during this very vulnerable state and there are a lot of ways that we can talk about that but at its core what happens during sleep is separation from the caregiver. And in order for kids to feel safe separating, they need to have what I think of as their connection well, so full, right? That they just, they feel connected. So it's easy to fall asleep, right? So much of what happens during bedtime, and and I'm totally guilty of this, is that feeling of like, it's the end of the day. We've probably pushed it to the limit. I'm exhausted. I still have like 25 things to do, and I need you to go to sleep <laughs> now. <laughs> right? And like all of that, even if we don't say that, like all of that energy is coming out of us. And our kids feel that. They feel that energy, and it's a disconnecting energy. It's like a I want you to go away so I can do what I need to do energy. Mm-hmm. And for me, what changed bedtime so much is actually. Trying to flip even my language around it. So instead of saying bedtime, it's connection time or snuggle time or family time or whatever works for you and make it so that the actual intention is to connect, to fill up that love well, right? So try to resist the rushing so hard, helps if you start earlier, and actually think of the time as what does my kid need in order to feel maximally connected to me right now? And then that makes it easier to fall asleep because our nervous system isn't like, but, 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 mm-hmm. right? Whatever we want our kids to do, that's what they push back against the hardest. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so having that connection time and there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, for me, one thing I noticed that that really surprised me was um, when my oldest, I don't remember, maybe it was like three or four, and I was starting to really, oh, I think it was while I was pregnant with my second, and I was like, holy moly, I need you to fall asleep right now. Um, I started (laughs) started, like noticing that when I was reading to her at night, I was reading in this really weird sort of like, um, almost trying to make This book as boring as possible. I was trying to like lull her to sleep with my voice, like I was some sort of deranged hypnotist. Like, and I'm like, I love books. I love reading. I'm an author. What am I doing? Like everything I knew about connected, engaged reading, like the door. And I was like a drone voice trying to hypnotize my kid to sleep. And It makes me laugh now thinking about it, but it was such a realization for me because I'm like, oh, she doesn't feel connected. This is not, this book reading is not doing what my attention is at all. And I really was like, okay, let's just read for engagement. And then the falling asleep part will happen after. Let's read for connection, read for engagement, read to like laugh together, ask questions. All the things we know we should do when we're reading, ask the kids questions about the story is, you know, point to different things in the illustration, ask their opinions. How do you think this character feels? I wasn't doing any of that. So I started doing it. And at first I'm like, oh, it's just going to wake her up. But I didn't, you know, it made her feel connected to me. So then when it was like, okay, we're done, lights out, it was easy. There was no resistance. There was no just one more because I'd given her what she needed and she didn't have to keep asking for it. Mm. That makes sense.
0: Yes, it does. Um, we call that our time. Let's let's go have our time, but um, n- not like it's some special name or anything. But that's what I always called it. And my kids are all pretty good sleepers. They all went to bed very easily. But so, what, what about a mom who maybe feels like she is doing that? She feels like she's like giving that connection or whatever. Maybe even laying down with a child, and the child is still struggling against that. Do you have any tips for that mom?
1: Yeah, I do. And look, no one thing is going to work for every kid. Right. Talking through individual situations is really, you know, where it's at. But what I would recommend is thinking about what's getting in the way, right? What's getting in the way of this kid being able to fall asleep? And maybe it's fear or anxiety around some very specific thing. Right. And sometimes the way that we handle that as grownups doesn't actually reassure the kids. And I have found this to be true in many situations. Um, and I can give a personal example. Everything comes back to my own kids, I guess. Um, but my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter, about a year and a half ago, got very, very afraid that our house was going to burn down when she was sleeping. Like, it kind of coincided with her moving into her own room. She was sleeping with us for a while. When she moved into her own room, she was so excited. She got a bunk bed. She wanted to be in there. She was totally ready. And then the first night she slept in her own room, she was like, fire. If there's a fire, I'm not with mom. It just blew her. You know, it scared her, truly scared her. And I think the initial impulse of many parents is to minimize the concern. That's never going to happen. Our house isn't going to burn down. There's no monster in the closet. Nobody can get in here, right? I've heard that many, many times. And the problem is from the kids' perspective, this is a very real fear. And if my grown-up can't even acknowledge the scary thing, how are they going to protect me from the scary thing? Right? That and that logic makes sense right? If the person in charge is ignoring the problem, they cannot be part of the solution. So in a situation where your kid is afraid of something or has an anxiety around something, our very human attempt to minimize that thing usually is making the problem worse. So in my case, it was all about like, okay, let's take a look at this, right? We have to look the anxiety right in the face. And make a plan and for my kid it was like we made a chart of the house what are the exits if this then that we practiced it um it helps because my husband's a firefighter <laughs> so we went through it was like we have a really good plan and we got, we got one of those like ladders that you can hang out the window and like odds are we're never gonna have to use it but she knows exactly what the plan would be and once we did that she was okay because we empowered her Right. We can't make a perfect world for our kids, but if we can help them prepare, if we can help them feel powerful, if we can help them feel that they have capacity, then those scary things aren't overwhelming. And, you know, if it's a monster in the closet, you make a plan. If you have to open the closet every single night, check it, spray the water in the closet. Put the baby monitor, get a baby monitor, like point it to the closet and say, I'm, I can see this. I'm monitoring the closet, right? And like, it's not gonna last forever. You're not feeding your kids fear. You're giving them a strategy that says, hey, your kid and your nervous system knows that you can't handle all the scary things. Your nervous system knows you need a calm, competent grown-up co-regulating with you, co-dealing with you, showing you the way And if we're willing to do that for our kids, they do, um, they kind of absorb our confidence and that sense of problems can be dealt with. And then they grow into the ability to deal with them on their own.
0: I love that strategy. I love it. And you're not going to believe this, but my kids went through the same thing. So there was, um, I think it was even a firefighter who came to their school or somewhere. Maybe it was even a church. I don't know, but they came and you know how they do this fire safety thing. And the same thing happened. My two children that, um, shared a bedroom started both like talking about it and they were just Feeding each other's fears about it, and I did what you did. I'm like, okay, well, here's this window. It's it's kind of hard to lift, but this is how you did. And I taught them how to open the window. I taught them to go outside. I even talked to our neighbors who lived next door. I was like, if there's a fire, my daughters are going to come out this window, and they're going to come to your house, and they're going to ring the bell. And we went through all this stuff. And after we had a plan, they were fine. But. It was just one of those things where I think the firefighter was teaching them, you know, you need to sleep with your bedroom door closed because, you know, that's one of the ways that people die, you know, having the smoke get to them before the fire. And so he was talking about this, but what he did inadvertently, and I mean, there, it happens, you know, they have, you know, they do these talks and stuff and it is meant for good and it usually works out great. But sometimes kids latch on to one thing and get fearful. But, and so, yeah, I think you're right. Just investigating and finding out if there is something maybe that, maybe the child doesn't even know, right, what it is. But you may be able to help them discover it, right? Like if you're, and you can be
1: connected and playful in that, like, okay, like sleep is really important, but it seems really tricky and we need to like go on a exploration. We need a scavenger hunt to figure out what's making this hard and then you experiment. But if you're in it with the kid, right? If you're like, we're going to experiment together, we're going to figure this out. And I'm right here with you, not what's wrong with you, you just need to go to sleep, right? Then sometimes you may never even figure out what the problem was, but you're still solving it because they're feeling more connected and seen, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's what the nervous system wants, Mm -hmm. right? To know I'm attuned to. Right. So if you give that, even if you never figure out the specific problem, sometimes the anxiety
0: connected to it goes away. I love it. That's it's such a good strategy. The last question I had for you, you seem like you have a lot of things on your plate. You're an author, you're an entrepreneur, you have all these different things going. You're a mother, and even just being a mom and working is enough, but to be running your own business and everything. So how do you, how do you balance it all? So this is for us moms, kind of a little, a little help for us moms. Yeah.
1: Wow, that is such a good question. And, you know, there are a lot of days when I feel like the balance is a little off or like, does balance exist? But, you know, somehow I actually am moving through my life doing a lot of things and enjoying them, right? So I guess that's some sort of balance. Um, And I would say there are a few things that have really helped me with that. Um, one is figuring out who I can go to for support. You know, I mentioned earlier in the interview, having those inner resources are essential and then having the idea in your mind that my community can be a resource and then investing in that is also really important because, you know, we can't just like randomly call people for help if we haven't cultivated that connection and community. So really thinking for me about like, Who are the different people in my life who can support me in different ways, right? Who are the people who would like love to hang out with my kids for a couple of hours if I need help? Okay, let me like check in with that relationship and make sure like they really are happy about that and I don't need to feel guilty calling on them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Because for me, it was a big deal. Like I don't want to ask anybody because then I feel guilty. Everyone's busy, blah, blah, blah. But that's not always true. That's a story I'm making up in my head. Right, I have some friends who are like psyched to come over and hang out with my kids. So I had to get over that. Right, who is the friend that I can call when I need a pep talk? Who's the person I can call when I actually need help solving a problem? Right, figuring out who those people are, and really um, valuing those relationships, nurturing them, and remembering to access them has been invaluable. And then you know, like a saying got in my mind many years ago, and I've been working towards it, which is like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I don't know who said that originally, but holy moly, has it saved my butt on many occasions. Because, you know, I think a lot of people who start their own businesses, a lot of people who um, really like take this mothering gig, you know, to the, to the, we're perfectionists, you know, Mm -hmm. we're achievers and we've gotten a lot of validation for that achievement oriented capacity to do things well. And there comes a point in your life where you could do a lot of things, but you can't be perfect at all of them. And you can do a lot of things well, but you have to choose which ones are really important to you. So for me, it's been this balancing act of don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? You don't have to be perfect. You can do things really well. You can do things that are meaningful in the world, meaningful to your kids without putting so much pressure on yourself. And you can't do everything. You can do anything, but you can't do everything, right? So so being selective about what things are most important to me, um, especially with two kids, has been something that I have really had to do. So I don't know. get help and be picky about what you say. Yeah, you so
0: to. knowing who's on your team, learning to accept good enough sometimes, and yeah. acknowledging that you simply can't do everything. So I think yeah. those are three really great tips for moms and, you know, women out there in general for balancing life And work and all of the things that we balance. Well, thank you for being with us today. I do love your book. And I did notice one thing before we go. At the end, I thought it was kind of cool that you had this little section where it's just thank you feet and legs and stuff. It's almost like you could memorize this. And even if you weren't reading the book, you could just lay in bed. And it kind of almost reminded me of a practice that goes along with a breathing technique or even almost. I'm, I don't know, I'm hesitant to say, but self-hypnosis where you just like calm each part or where you like tense your hands and then relax your hands, tense your legs and relax them just kind of like a body check before you go to sleep, right?
1: Exactly. That's exactly what it's meant to be is, is a body scan, Right, so that's a, it's a really, a body scan is a really powerful practice. It's in a lot of different meditation traditions. And what I wanted to do with the book was kind of create a resource at the end where, you know, maybe kids not gonna wanna read this exact book every single night, but they almost have like the cliff notes, right? So it's like, even if you're not reading the whole book, hopefully you can incorporate that body scan practice, that gratitude-based body scan practice into your life on a a day-to-day basis on a nightly basis and then as kids get older and they may be moving away from having stories read to them or they have other things that they want to read i'm hoping that it's something that they can keep with them and they can kind of see that one page in their mind they don't have to read the whole book they don't have to have it read to them it's just a little move through the body from your feet to your head um, and check in. And you can do it with a tense and let go. You can do it with just sending a little love to each body part. Um, but it's, it's meant to be um, a way that you can practice this self-compassion and this gratitude for your body without reading the whole story.
0: Perfect. It's a really good habit. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here today. I think you have a lot of really good ideas and a very lovely book, and I'll make sure that the links to everything is in the show notes. So if you're listening, make sure you go check out that. And you can also watch this episode on YouTube. So if you want to see, so you can see the beautiful book and illustrations, go to um, the That Organic Mom YouTube page and check it out.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate
0: it. It was fun. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on ThatOrganicMom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.